0: Hey, welcome to the Hell has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 833-999-1877 to speak to a specialist. This show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. All right. Hey, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. On this show, we interview a lot of recovering addicts, people who have overcome adversity, people who have changed their lives. Today, like a close friend of mine was asking me like, hey, I know someone who wants to be on the podcast. He told me, like, he overcame drugs and he'd be great as a guest. And in my mind, I was like, yeah, but I don't really know this person. Like, I can't have someone on this show that I don't necessarily know or who isn't, like, recommended by somebody I know that someone hasn't known for, like, years. You know, like, anybody can come up to me and be like, hey, I got a good story, you know. So I met you through Christopher G. Shout out to Chris G. And he told me, like, as soon as I told him I had this podcast from day one, he's like, you got to get Jesse. And I was like, okay, cool. And he put us in a group chat and we met Jesse, your book, no bullshit. I wanted to wait until the podcast to tell you it was so good. I read a lot. I read a lot of books. Probably read a couple hundred books in my life. I've read a lot of drug addiction memoirs and I don't really like drug addiction memoirs because they're like corny or they don't get clean. A lot of the drug addiction memoirs, like I remember I read a million little pieces, great book. But at the end of the book, he like just looks at a bottle of alcohol and like dumps it down the drain, and like he doesn't explain how he gets clean or what that pro- how uncomfortable the first couple of years are adjusting to society, and a lot of books are like that, and your book was like I I listened to an audiobook, and I remember like wanting to take the long way to keep listening to it, and that's like really rare. Like I want to keep hearing the story to see what happens, and it was entertaining. It was raw. It's exactly what Hell Has An Exit's about. It was that good.
1: Fuck. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just having to pull it together, especially people that know me, know that I don't have a problem crying, but that means a lot, dude. And I
0: got clean young. So it's (laughs) like, you know, there's not that many people who got clean as a teenager that have stayed clean and accomplished, you know, what you've been able to accomplish. And like writing a book is one of my dreams, you know? So like to see somebody else Like I went to your book signing, you know, like it's different when like, like a celebrity writes a book, but like when somebody like from the program that we know, that we know people who know you, who people have seen you grow up, when someone from like our community writes a book, it like means something to like us, because I tell people all the time, like, bro, this isn't about getting clean. It's about being in recovery, you know? And this is what step 12 is about. This is like step 12 right here.
1: (laughs) Right? Well, thank you, dude, seriously, and thank you for having me on your podcast. More than anything, for the validation, not that I'm seeking that outside validation, you bringing me back to purpose and intent behind me wanting to write my book. Having gotten clean young, because you're right, a lot of people don't tell the story of the journey of recovery and what happens. You know, there's the horrors of addiction, There's how I hit bottom, but our journeys in recovery Mm -hmm. and how we evolve and how we go from being homeless sex workers to graduating from Harvard Mm -hmm. and that process and coming from another man of color, Mm -hmm. another Latino man who is straight and I'm not. There's always that fear for me of being rejected, especially by my cisgender, heterosexual Mm -hmm. brothers in the community, even in recovery. And the fact that you were able to connect from a place of hope that we do get clean. Mm -hmm. There's not many of us writing books and telling our stories. And your story needs to be told.
0: I appreciate that. And look, that's why I do the podcast, because it's like sometimes I like listen to stories on TikTok and Instagram or whatever. And I'm like, dude, I know people with crazier stories just work normal jobs. You know, like I know people that, you know, like maybe that she's just a waitress now. But if you knew her story, you wouldn't understand how crazy it is that this girl's even a waitress. Exactly. That she's not just a waitress, but to get to to get get that person there and be able to to get the driver's license, (laughs) to show up to the court dates, to get her kids back. Right. So it's like, you know, I see. In recovery, we see so many crazy stories that we get numb to, like, normal stories, you know? Your story, for anyone that's not, I just want to showcase the book. So the book is called I'm Not Broken, Jesse Leon, a memoir. It's about you being uh, Latin descent, obviously, living in South California. San Diego. San Diego. Having a crazy, crazy drug addiction story, but a story of not just getting clean but like you said graduating Harvard and becoming somebody and losing that stigma or trying to lose the stigma mm. which is like a constant thing because like you know I have 14 years clean there's times where I walk into a room and I still wonder if people are going to know that I'm a drug addict or that I don't feel like I fit in or like my opinion's not going to matter as much or you know you know like the disease is still there so your story means a lot because it shows people that, you know, you can just get clean. That's great. But you can also get clean. You can dream, you know? Like, it's okay to have big dreams. Right. You know? So, <laughs> hey. So,
1: let's no, start no, no. your well, story. Where are you from? So, well, thank you. First, mm-hmm. because that was the reason I wrote the book, was to inspire hope in others to not give up in spite of how dark life can get sometimes. And also for our families. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. we all have that cousin, that nephew, that brother that just ain't gonna, that you're just like, damn, he ain't never gonna get, he ain't never gonna get clean. That was me. That was probably you. Yeah. Okay. And and so to inspire hope in others to not give up, but also to show that recovery is possible and that we talk about old dreams reawaken. Well, sometimes we don't know what the hell to dream. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we don't even know what's out there and what's possible. Mm-hmm. And so... These, in my book, I talk about these, like, moments of magic, right, of people coming into my life at exactly the right time to kind of steer me in a certain direction that eventually got me to graduate from Harvard. And what I don't talk about, because the book starts and ends at Harvard graduation, I'm hoping that I, one, will be able to do a, an, adap- an adaptation of the book into a young adult version, because mm-hmm. it's, it's too graphic and it's I think little- too raw for a young adult market? I, I, I think it could
0: have been more graphic. Oh, wow, that's but funny. I, but I do think that there was, <laughs> I do think, because I think about my book, you know, like if I write one, and I'm like, how graphic do I want it to be, you know? But the reality is like, you know, I'm a professional, like I own a company, I have employees. I don't want it to be, I don't want people to think I'm crazy. So yours was like, because sometimes it, it's, it, a book can feel like someone's being graphic just to be attention seeking, right. you know? And your book was really good at It being unapologetically real and it also being vulnerable and not coming off as graphic.
1: I reflected on this like last week because that's been coming up a lot and it did get edited down a lot. But I've had some people say, why were you as graphic as you were? I feel like it was a 6.5. Oh, that's cool. Thank you. Yeah. And so, but I also wonder, it's because we're in recovery. Right. So, yeah, we, like, so, yeah. so we so so we live 6. through this, right? 15. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So but there's this piece about so once I graduated Harvard, and I hope that I'm able to write a second book on what happened after Harvard mm-hmm. and my trajectory from graduating from Harvard, going into the field of philanthropy, creating demonstration projects across the United States to rebuild cities. I mean, I invested in East Baltimore, Detroit. East Oakland, uh, Wynwood in Miami, uh, Liberty City, Allapada, downtown Tampa, like there's, there's uh, Philadelphia. I worked in philanthropy to help redevelop urban areas and create economic opportunities for residents that live there. Then I became a real estate developer and I built over wow. 5,000 units of housing, over $2 billion in investments. And then I went back into philanthropy... Um, Help create some dope, dope programs, mostly in Florida and the Mm -hmm. Southeast. And now, what I do is I manage multi-million-dollar investments for high-net-worth families and institutions for social impact. And so, how do you go from this being a homeless sex worker?
0: Can we talk about it? Because I want (laughs) to. I I know you don't want to like give away the book, but like you know, I want to hear about like how you grew up and what it was like how
1: you got into drugs the gift shop so i do recommend that the listeners do pick up i'm not broken a lot of my heart and emotion was put into this the audiobook is is sick the audiobook is amazing
0: yeah so <laughs> having a podcast i've become like a snob with sound and i listen to other people's audiobooks and i'm like who the fuck recorded this because you could i I guess I listen now to how audio sounds. Mm -hmm. And I can appreciate when someone's audio quality is like a museum quality. It's like a high end. And like your audio was, was, was high end. It sounded great. It sounded like a
1: professional person put it together. They did. You know, and I'm cause, actually... Because
0: sometimes you listen to some audio books and you're like, was this recorded on an iPhone? <laughs> so.
1: No, I was blessed. I was blessed that Penguin Random House really invested on the right team. The engineer was a Latino. He actually worked on the Spanish one. That we just finished yesterday. So mm-hmm. the Spanish version comes out November that. cool. 22nd. Um, and it's How's called. Your Spanish? Oh, my Spanish is perfect. It's better bro. than your English? Oh, it's, uh, almost, almost. almost oh, your English
0: <laughs> is better than your Spanish.
1: It is. And that has to do with, you know, Spanish was my first language. Uh-huh. We weren't allowed to speak English in the home. So uh-huh. my mom and my dad were of the mindset of you're going to learn English when you go to school, but in the house you speak Spanish. Yeah, my parents tried to do that with us and I was not having it. <laughs> yeah. And so but growing up at one point and it talk about it in the book when my mom finds out about the sexual abuse mm-hmm. not knowing how to really translate that into that Spanish That
0: was crazy to me because l- l- let's start from the beginning I need to know <laughs> I need to know about right, the right, beginnings right. like what was it like growing up what area did you grow up in what was your household like and how did you start getting involved in
1: I guess did the, did the drugs come first or did the sexual abuse come first. All right. So born and raised in San Diego, predominantly around downtown at a time where downtown wasn't... If you've been to San Diego, you know we have the Gaslamp District. Mm -hmm. And it's all gentrified, a lot of beautifully restored Victorian homes that San Diego is known for. That was the hood. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, it was now Little Italy, but it wasn't called Little Italy then. And we had that... The Victorian homes were where all the poor Mexicans lived. Always grew up in the geography between Southeast San Diego, downtown, and Little Italy area. So very urban. And by day, it was the business district. By night, it was a red light district. Loving, nerdy, caring kid. Um, So, because you had an older brother who was the opposite of you, right? Yeah, my older brother was, you know, light skinned. Golden brown hair, muscular, played football, soccer, was always out riding bikes, fixing bikes, helping tough my guy. dad fix the car. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. My dad, my my, my brother was, was the tough guy. And so he would help my dad fix cars. My dad would try to get me to hand him a wrench. I'd give him a plier. He'd ask for a plier. I'd give him... You know, a screwdriver, and you start screaming at me. You know, pinche bueno pa nada, vete ayudarla a tu pinche mama, which is like you're good for nothing. Yeah. Go help your mom. And but I loved helping my mom. Uh huh. And I wish I could pull up my phone. Yeah, because
0: yeah, that was like a, a cute part in the book.
1: Because you know, I was, I literally was a little Mexican nerd. I had my hair parted to the side. Back then, the trendy glasses that we wear now with the thick frames. Really cool weren't cool. Yeah, You know, RuPaul wears them now, and all these folks wear them now. But back then, those were the welfare glasses. Mm-hmm. If you were poor, you got the big, ugly, black and brown frames. I would be sitting on the floor in our little tiny apartment with an encyclopedia, a National Geographic magazine that I would get from the library, and a dictionary. And I'd be on the floor and losing myself in like turkey Mm -hmm. and i would be researching the underground cities of turkey and 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 then i'd go back and forth to the encyclopedia and if there was a word i didn't understand i'd go to the dictionary and then my brother would come by and he'd kick me in the ribs and be like get the fuck out the way you fucking nerd i hope i can cuss yeah yeah. all right because you know i uh cussing is encouraging (laughs) and so he would he would bully me Mm -hmm. and he started the trend of calling me nerd the original title of the book, I'm Not Broken, was going to be NERD. Oh, that's cool. And I, I changed it to be an acronym mm-hmm. of never-ending resilience and determination. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted NERD to be. They said that the, image, the term NERD brings up an image of a white, techie individual that has since been vindicated by Silicon Valley. And so I'm like, no. It's still not okay to be a young kid of color that is nerdy. Mm-hmm. And it's okay because we don't really see that in mainstream media. You don't see it in hip-hop. You don't see it in music. Yeah, you don't really see like a black nerd, a Hispanic nerd. Right, we have yeah. Manny from Modern Family or we have Urkel. Urkel, there you go. And that's it, right? And yeah, so, and we still, I think with Encanto that came out from Disney, you have the first main character on a Disney cartoon that wears glasses. hmm but you don't see superheroes wearing glasses, right? They become the superhero without glasses. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so well, yeah. Clark
0: Kent can. And, and the glasses are a disguise.
1: And the glasses are a disguise, right, yeah. of being a nerd. Yes. So I was this nerdy kid, and I would love helping my mom cook. Mm-hmm. I'd help her wash clothes. And my dad would just criticize her for that. My mom loved me. Mm-hmm. I would tie my shirt, I would get my shirt, I'd tie it in a knot. <laughs> After watching Wonder Woman, uh-huh. especially when I found out that Linda Carter was Mexican, I would tie my shirt in a knot and spin around in the living room, wow. like Wonder Woman, right? And my mom would laugh with me. Mm-hmm. And, but there was this underlying tone of, don't let your dad catch you doing that. Wow. And so I went from being the smart, nerdy kid to one day having a water balloon fight. Having a water bucket fight. I'm 11 years old. Okay. Uh, We were having a water bucket fight. A bunch of the guys in the neighborhood sent me to a store to go buy water balloons. They put their money together to buy water balloons. And
0: let me ask you a question:
1: Would you be like
0: feminine with your mom, and then like at 11, and then like tough with the guys outside?
1: Or at that point in time, did you not really have that type of concept? There really was. I I knew I was gay. I, I knew that, well, no, I didn't know I was gay. I knew that I would have boy crushes as a kid, but I didn't understand what that was, right? Because okay. you're a little boy. You would know that you were attracted to the guy when you watched yeah, TV like, but, or something. But then at the same time, I would, I'd be a kid and the guys were playing football or basketball and I'd be staring in awe. And I wouldn't know if I was staring because I was like, damn, he's cute. Or was I staring out of admiration because one day I wanted to be like that. Yeah, like, oh, he's jacked. Like, damn, he's jacked. Like, I want to be like that. Okay, But you're a kid. Uh So there was no sexualizing anything. Gotcha. I was an innocent child that wanted to just come into my own identity of whether that was, you know, that non-gender binary was not a thing back then. (laughs) You're either a boy or a girl. Mm -hmm. And if you're a Latino boy... You're supposed to be doing the things my brother was doing with my dad. Mm -hmm. It wasn't okay to be cooking in the kitchen with my mom. We didn't have cooking shows back then. We Mm -hmm. didn't have cooking competitions, right? You you didn't see that on TV. Yeah, you didn't see men cooking. You didn't see men cooking, especially men of color. Yeah. And so I was confused. I always felt that I didn't fit in or belong. In my neighborhood, at school, in community, at home, I wasn't like my brother. I couldn't get my dad's love and support. The only time my dad, we'd feel connected is when we'd play chess before we went to bed. Okay. And my dad would make me play chess and he would make me do math equations hmm. addition, subtraction, multiplication mm-hmm. and division since as far back as I can remember. But one day, I get sent to Safeway to go buy water balloons. Safeway doesn't have any. The guy at Safeway tells me to go to this gift shop. Hmm. Not in my book. And I walk into a gift shop that marked my life forever. I got sexually abused by the owner of the gift shop. He threatened me. How old do you think he was? Him? Yeah.
0: When you were 11. Oh,
1: God. He must have been... 35 to 36, he looked like Freddie Mercury. So when the mustaches got trendy Mm -hmm. a few years ago and people were rocking the big mustaches, I would get triggered left and right, especially in the workplace. Mm -hmm. It was a white guy who looked like Freddie Mercury. And then a few months later, I don't know if it was his lover, his partner, an African-American guy would watch the store when other men were brought in. So what started off as sex abuse. Mm-hmm. And, and just so people know, like this guy locked
0: the door, physically hit you, and there was like a closet in the gift shop? So it
1: was a gift shop that had... Like a storage closet? Yeah, so when you walk in, it had like knickknacks and toys and gifts, like mm-hmm. any, like, you know, like like a gay hallmark. Mm-hmm. And along the back, they had gift cards aligned the wall, uh, like you know, along the wall, was and as it, you go to was the, it a gay gift shop? So, or it was a gift shop that just happened to have gay stuff. It was a or gift like, shop in the gay part of town. Wow, that I'd never been in there before, but that's where they sent me. And the guy from Safeway, know, just, like, and you know, I wouldn't pool, care anyways, right? Yeah. I'm a kid, right? So, yeah, you're just trying to get just some walk water in trying to get water balloons, right? And so, along the side of the cards, wow. I see that there's an adult card section. Mm -hmm. And me and my brother would sneak into the Playboy channel. Okay. You know, at seven years old, my brother's 10, and we'd try to watch boobs through the squiggly lines. (laughs) And so I start opening these cards, and I'm looking around, and I start seeing these naked girls on these, like, happy birthday, big boy kind Mm -hmm. of shit, right? And then the cards get more risque as you go farther down the aisle Uh and they become these trifold birthday cards Mm -hmm. and there's men and women in sexual poses and i'd never seen a naked guy so there's wow. an image of a guy that
0: was the first time i'm
1: 11 years old i mean you know yeah, okay yeah, yeah, but like, maybe like in the a, in well, the you know ymca after getting out of the pool or in the boy scouts you're gonna shower but it wasn't like a sexual thing looking yeah. right and it wasn't a sexual thing all of a sudden i'm this looking was the at first these.
0: well it's interesting to me because like the first time you saw a se- uh, a person naked sexually And you got molested the same day. Because, you know, on
1: on Playboy, back in the day, and even, I don't know how it is now, but it was that soft porn. Yeah, yeah. They never showed the guy's dick. They never showed the penetration. So it was the first time seeing, like, an erect penis, right? And I'm 11 years old, and I'm like, oh, my God. And my heart is beating. Mm -hmm. My palms are sweaty. I'm a super Catholic, nerdy kid. I feel like One side, there's a devil telling me, keep looking. The other side, there's like the angel on this side telling me, get the hell out of here. Get on your bike. Go home. Mm -hmm. Go say an Our Father, a Hail Mary. Ask for forgiveness. Go to confession. Tell the priest what you Mm -hmm. did and find forgiveness. You're not supposed to be doing this. Get out of here. And so as I'm looking at these cards, all of a sudden I hear, I feel a, a the shopkeeper's hand on my shoulder. I freak out, I drop the card and he picks it up. And he says, that's a big dick, isn't it? And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I just, he's like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. You wanted water balloons. Um, They're actually in the back storage room. And I talk about this in my book. Says they're in the back storage room. They're on a box on the floor. Um, I'll be right with you. So feel free to go back there.
0: Hey, now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. It can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when faced with a challenge in life. But when you learn to find your own solutions, there's no better feeling. A therapist can help you become a better problem solver, making it easier to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. What can someone get from trying therapy? Unload stress, emotional healing, help with anxiety and depression, and much more. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option it's convenient accessible affordable and entirely online get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists at any time when you want to be a better problem solver therapy can get you there visit betterhelp.com exit today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp.com exit
1: And so i go back there it's a back storage closet with shelves and a bathroom Mm -hmm. and there's all these boxes on the floor that are taped up and i'm a little mexican nerdy loving kid i was taught you don't open anything without permission i'm not about to go open all these boxes Mm -hmm. so i'm looking and try to see which one it is and when i i'm in there a few minutes and so i before i have the courage to open one i turn around to go ask the guy for permission and he's standing in the doorway. That becomes a very violent sexual interaction. I get my ass kicked. Mm-hmm. He threatens me. He lets me out, tells me to go back, or he's going to kill me and find out where I live and kill my family. And so when I left, I got back to the house. And it's, I, I don't talk about it in detail in my book, but my brother, my mom saw how beaten up I was and freaks out, runs to me. And I'm telling her and my brother and everyone that I got that I fell off my bike mm-hmm. and I'm wearing shorts. My brother looks at my knees and they're not scraped. Mm-hmm. So he looks right at me and I remember this so perfectly cause he looked at me like, you're a fucking liar. You didn't fall off your bike. You got beaten up, mm-hmm. but I was too afraid to say anything. A Few days later, I go back, keep going back. And then about a few months into it, so they started getting me high. Wow. So a few months into it, they so, started bringing just other... Just so people
0: know, so the shopkeeper is basically saying, you need to come back here once a week or I'm going to kill your whole family. And you don't really, you know, you don't know who to tell or whatever and you keep going
1: back there. Every, every two days. Every two days. Wow. And so I go back and... Um, they start giving you drugs they start inviting other men to join in the back room of the gift shop and they get me high for the first time mm. smoking weed it's funny i could say just smoking weed now, yeah. right but you're an 11 year old kid yeah it, so your first exposure to I'm, al- I'm already confused about my sexuality i'm looking at these nudie cards mm-hmm. I don't know what's happening inside of me with seeing this naked guy on a card. Shopkeeper catches me. I get sexually abused. I get threatened. I blame myself. Mm -hmm. The whole time I blamed myself. He smelled the gayness on me. Mm -hmm. I blamed my mom that had she not supported me in being that little nerdy loving kid, had she not allowed me to help her in the kitchen, had I been forced to do the manly things like my brother was doing and not encouraged to do the girly things that maybe the shopkeeper would not have been able to smell my softest, my softness, my gayness, and none of that would have happened. Mm-hmm. So I blamed myself for years. And your mom, well. Wow. I hated my mom. Wow. Yet, I loved her and didn't want to hurt her, which is why I never said anything. But I blamed her for a very long time Mm -hmm. because for loving me for me, for wanting me to just be Jessie. Because I found out years later or in conversations, sorry, with my mom that her mom would grab her by the ear, drag her into the house and beat the shit out of her. For playing marbles with the boys in the neighborhood because my mom was a tomboy wow. so it was completely the opposite mm-hmm. and my mom wanted me to just be the best me i can be mm-hmm. but i blamed that for creating the situation of my sex abuse wow. of a way only an 11 year old kid could process yeah
0: and just so people know it wasn't like hey we're gonna have fun and smoke some weed it was like hardcore sexual abuse for years
1: so this went on for about three years in that transition i rejected everything about being nerdy and I it re- got like worse and worse oh it got totally yeah. worse and so worse. it's like and i just want to say to anyone listening so part of trauma-informed care and being in therapy over all these years and doing emdr doing brain spotting you know doing parts work and mm-hmm. doing talk therapy doing cbt and dbt you know, I'm a huge advocate for mental health and therapy. What I talk about in my book is how the system failed me. And and we'll get into that in a minute. Yeah. But part of trauma informed care is being able to talk about it without reliving the experiences. And that's mm-hmm. what's hard. That that's what's hard. So if you ask me a question and I say I'd rather not discuss that that's because fine. it generates that's, that's fine. too much pain, yeah. That's where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. I rejected being smart, nerdy, loving Jesse. Did what all the guys in the neighborhood were doing and became a wannabe cholo. But mm-hmm. cholo, I think you guys call them chongos in, in Florida. <laughs> I
0: don't think we call them anything. I don't think there's like a term in Florida for like a thugged out Hispanic person. Because
1: you have chonga for the girls, yeah, you yeah. know, which is a chola out there, right? But I started wearing size 36 Dickies, creased out, my Kmart corduroy slippers, shaved my head back, started training my hair to grow back. I started having peach fuzz, started looking like a little wannabe homeboy. Mm -hmm. Started being extremely um, a class clown, acting up in school, uh, fighting constantly with my mom, and thought that becoming hyper-masculine would hide the fact that, so that anyone would ever find out that two to three days a week I'm going to this gift shop having sex with multiple men mm-hmm. by force. And that I was being sex trafficked and sexually exploited as a child. Yeah, so so now the
0: gift shop worker is actually pimping you out. Yeah, and I, So it's, one, it's pedophilia underage. Right. Um, two, obviously unwarranted, whatever. Um, what would you say to some cause like I've had other people that have been on the show that have been held captive by pimps what whatever, and beaten nearly to death, and then told, hey, if you fucking leave, we'll get you, and whatever. And then a lot of people are like, I don't know, like, why couldn't you just leave? And I don't think people understand the psychological uh, warfare that happens when someone is sexually abused, then physically abused. For years, and then told that they're never going to be shit, that they're not good enough, right. that no one would even believe you, that if you went to the cops, we would kill you. And it seems like if someone told me that right now, I would be like, fuck you, are you crazy? But when you're in a vulnerable, butt naked, raped position, mm-hmm.
1: someone could tell you something and you, you, you kind of believe it, you know? And so when I became this wannabe cholo and started hanging out with guys... And had that support system, because I was already getting high with the shopkeeper and his buddy, I started getting high in school, you know, and I'm in what, seventh grade now, 11 going on 12, and then I turned 12 in seventh grade. And so I got, because I started hanging out with the homeboys, I got this false sense of pride and courage Mm -hmm. that I stopped going to the store. Yeah. And one evening... He shows up at the house and he's there outside the apartments and he points to his watch. And I'm like, <gasps> you know, you get punched, you're like beaten up, you, you're, you're like, oh fuck, mm-hmm. and you're scared. And I went back and once again became extremely violent. And then the mental mind fuck behind how it happened and threatened to kill my mom and even said that he spoke to my mom Mm -hmm. and so I don't want to give away too much of the book right but it talks about that hellhole that I had to live for for up to three years and then something happens I get in an altercation I almost kill this kid I black out I was that little angry wannabe and I say wannabe because I was a wannabe I never got jumped into any formal gang or Mm -hmm. any of that stuff right it just And I beat up this kid. And as I beat him up, I blacked out. And all I could think about, all I could see were the faces of the shopkeeper, his buddy, and other men. And I'm beating up this kid, and I'm smashing his head against a stucco wall, and there's blood everywhere, and I get handcuffed. And then that changed my life forever. So the authorities get involved and i'm supposed to go into this victim witness program victim advocacy program the state's gonna help they convince the boy's mom to not press charges Mm -hmm. and as long as they can show proof Mm -hmm. as long as they can show proof that i'm getting help Mm -hmm. which is a total total violation of hipaa laws right how it all happened and played out was totally messed up should have never happened Mm -hmm. and so then. I have to tell my mom that I'm being sexually abused and I don't speak English perfectly. I'm speak homeboy English, right? Mm -hmm. Slang. And I don't speak Spanish perfectly. And in Spanish, we don't have a word for molest. Molest means molestar. Which means like someone bothered. Yeah. So I'm trying to tell my mom that I'm being bothered sexually, no social worker, no psychologist. The police officer just drops me off Mm -hmm. bloody clothes. And my mom has to sign like this giant stack of papers in English that I have to help translate to get me the help that I need. There's multiple times in the book where you can see
0: where there is a window of opportunity for authoritative, some type of system to step in and help you. And you see constantly in the book that it's almost like no way. Like when you read it, you're almost like there's no way you told this lady what was going on. And she kind of was like, well, if if this is true, like their whole attitude was like, you know, super unprofessional and just like it's all it's 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 hard to read. That's probably one of the hardest parts to read is that there's somebody who 14 years old and he's confessing that this is going on. And you can see instantly that you're regretting even saying anything because no one believes you. Now you're going to have to deal with this. And you're not getting help. You're not being treated
1: like a victim at all. When the detectives came to pick me up at school and they're questioning me without a parent present, without an adult, mm-hmm. they told the principal to leave the office and then forced me to go identify the store. Mm-hmm. And all this is going on. And I'm th- you know, now I can reflect back and be like, that was wrong. That was wrong. That should never have happened. That should not have happened, mm-hmm. which is why I also wrote the book. Because even now, I believe that our mental health system still addresses situations in silos. You work in substance abuse. Oftentimes, mental health, substance abuse, and trauma are still addressed in silos and in isolation. Very rarely do we address all those issues together. Mm -hmm. And I got assigned a therapist. And she was getting paid $125 an hour back in 1988 when my mom was only making $4.25 an hour, the minimum wage, as the lunch mom. Mm -hmm. And so for four years, I'm seeing this therapist who knows about the sex work, who knows about not even sex work, man. I'm 14 years old. The authorities get involved. We go, I, I take the detectives to the store. Perpetrator disappears, I'm now a dope fiend because, you know, by this time they've given me Coke with weed, which we call Primo's. Yeah. So I'm smoking Primo's in the store. I'm sniffing Coke. Crystal wasn't really out yet. And so I turn, my supplier's gone. Mm-hmm. So I'm 14 years old. I did school. I go to Balboa Park, which is, you know, the famous Balboa Park with the San Diego Zoo. It's a huge area for the sex trade.
0: So just to paint the picture, so you have a kid who's, abused for years, goes to authorities, the guy who works at the gift shop disappears. They kind of don't believe, or they don't believe you at all now. Detectives
1: never came back.
0: Detectives never followed up on it. They never checked payroll. They never questioned the owner of the gift shop, whatever. But now you have an addiction and now you have the sense of, well, this guy was making money off me, pimping me out. Why can't I just make my own money and get my own
1: drugs? I was handed off to the state. So we got him the help. He's now a part of the state. We have him in therapy. He'll be fine. And I often wonder what would have happened had I not been a little Mexican kid. Had it been a little white kid from like a rich school, would he have been surrounded by all the resources? The reality was I wasn't. And so my therapist, who was getting paid money, didn't do shit. So I turn to street prostitution when I find out what's going on at the park. When you turn to street po- prostitution,
0: do you, are you still telling your therapist that that's what you're doing or no? <laughs> the therapist knew everything,
1: man. She knew and about she the was, drugs. So
0: she knew that.
1: She never did a damn thing. That's for so, four years, never recommended drug and alcohol treatment. Never recommended. My mom asked. She was just like, My okay. mom asked for family sessions. Uh, she wouldn't do it. And, and I talk about this in my book, man. I remember her pulling out those, like, blots. Those, you yeah, know, yeah those, those ink blots. Those yeah, ink yeah. blots. And what do you see here? <laughs> Shit like that, right? Mm-hmm. Drawing assignments. And as if I'm 8 years old, but I'm 14, 15, 16 now, she never once recommended drug and alcohol treatment. Mm-hmm. I didn't know about programs like Phoenix House until I got clean. And so someone...
0: Not just that, it's like when someone is underage and they're talking about prostitution or something, like, you get the cops involved immediately. You know what I mean? Like Yeah, it's like— Now. It doesn't—yeah, now.
1: What happened to me, I'm hoping would not happen now, but I still see too many young people of color mm -hmm. dealing with substance abuse, dealing with sex trafficking— Dealing with the realities that a lot of people still deal with, not getting the resources that they need, and oftentimes not believed. Mm-hmm. And if you do try to get help, people don't know how to help you.
0: Mm-hmm. And so. And they don't want to be responsible, so they just brush it off. Because you see it again when, with the police officer who dropped you off. With, and even though I understand, like, like when that incident happened, when the police officer was gonna tell your mom, and then he didn't. And he just dropped you off.
1: at Not his responsibility, right? Like police police officers aren't trained to be social workers. And that's the whole debate right now.
0: Even though that seemed like the shittier thing to happen to you is like get arrested and whatever. That's textbook what he should have done. He wasn't being a nice guy by letting you off and not telling your parents.
1: And the funny part about it is um, I was so appreciative to him for being there. And I talk about how he was the first... Latino man who I told about the sex abuse to. Yeah, and, and I think that
0: you did it in a way of subconsciously being like, help me. Like reaching out for help. Yeah, because I used to do that when I was using. I would I would tell somebody what was really going on in hopes that and like the back of my head, you know you're sabotaging, you're using. It's like a you're it's, totally crying
1: and reaching yeah, out. Yeah, you're for crying
0: help. and reaching out for help, but you're doing in like, man, fuck you. Like I already like and like this way. Don't you know that I smoke crack or my parents don't give a fuck or whatever? And you think that this guy's going to tell my parents.
1: So you have the cop there and then you have a social worker that walks in or a few days later detectives. Mm -hmm. And the first thing out of their mouth is language like alleged sexual abuse. Yeah. Well, you beat up a white kid. You're probably making this up to not get locked up or get in trouble. So then once again, you're not being believed. Mm-hmm. So why the fuck ask for help? Yeah. And and when you don't know what's available, you just don't know. And so... Your addiction gets worse and worse
0: and worse. You start using crystal, a lot of other drugs. What was
1: it like getting clean? Man, you want me to give away the whole damn book, bro?
0: Okay, okay. So tell me, tell me what <laughs> the first year was like.
1: All right. So, so as I talk about in my book, I'm Not Broken... Long story short, 11 and a half, I get sexually abused, start getting pimped out in the sex trade. 14, I'm already a dope fiend. I turn to street prostitution to support my drug habit. 16, I become a sex worker. I run away from home. I'm living in LA, in East LA, and I'm turning tricks on Santa Monica Boulevard and Hollywood Boulevard. And at 18, I end up pretty much homeless, sleeping in Balboa Park under a bush weighing 135 pounds, engaged in extremely affordable, low paying sex work to support my drug habit. And that's where I ended up. And so I had a girlfriend and she gets in a fight with me and throws the yellow pages at me and says, you have a drug problem. And I don't know where, I didn't know what to look for. I didn't know, somewhere along the line, I must've heard of Narcotics Anonymous. And I think it was in junior high where you, you know, where people in NA do, you know, PI, right? Yeah. Right. You know, you know, PI, it's not H and I really, but you know, you're doing more PI. I looked up, I found Narcotics Anonymous and I called the NA hotline. This dude answers the phone and I'm like, Hey Holmes, my homegirl thinks I got a fucking drug problem, Holmes, but I ain't no dope finesse. I just want to keep smoking weed, Holmes. So he starts laughing, because that's how I talked when I yeah. got clean. He tells me where to go to a meeting. And I go to my first NA meeting that night. And this guy, really famous in recovery, was speaking. And I looked like a homeboy, obviously. My beanie down to my nose. I wore a beanie everywhere, dude. Um, which in New York is called a scully, mm-hmm. you know, or a skullcap. But I wore my beanie everywhere. And the farther down my beanie was the more uncomfortable I was. So it was a way like my armor, right? Mm-hmm. Dressing like a homeboy in my, my armor. And and I remember he said, I walked in right when the readings were happening and I was uncomfortable. And they got to the part of the readings where it said, it's not about age, race, sexual identity, creed, religion, or lack of religion. And then he starts telling his story and people start laughing at some of the crazy shit he was sharing. I was like, what? And then he started talking about finding hope in recovery. And I started crying. I found this sense of hope in that first meeting, but I didn't stay clean right away. There weren't young mm-hmm. kids of color yeah, when getting I talked, clean.
0: When I talked to Chris, I was like, I like make jokes like, oh, it was easy for you to get clean or whatever. And he's like, he'll look at me. I remember this one time he was like, bro, you gotta understand. I stayed clean for years without even seeing another young person.
1: That's how I felt. And that's why, like, in the, in the back of my book, it says, and, and I struggled with this line in the back of my book on the bio of the cover, because it says something about being the lone kid of color, from being the lone young person of color in Narcotics Anonymous meetings and coming to terms with his own sexual identity to becoming an engaged mentor for incarcerated youth Leon found the will to live with love and support of this blah, 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 right? Mm -hmm. And so, but that is how it felt. And I was known as Little Jesse in San Diego. Like, Mm -hmm. I was a little fucking Chicano kid, right? Mm -hmm. Getting clean in in San Diego. and Because there weren't, what, Drew Barrymore was going to meetings (laughs) in Hollywood. (laughs) There weren't young kids of color knocking down the doors of Narcotics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. And so... I didn't stay clean. And, but there's something important about the process of recovery. You asked about my first year. My first year was the hardest year of recovery. And I think part of the reason I've been able to stay clean is I never want to repeat year one ever again. Mm-hmm. Kicking on my own was not cute. I didn't know about treatment, dude. Mm-hmm. I got clean because my girlfriend made me call the NA hotline and I went to my first meeting and I kicked in and out of meetings. I was constantly fidgeting. I was that one kid in meetings. I was that person in meetings. I was always moving his legs, always fidgeting. I I had to have something in my hands at all times. So my addiction became styrofoam cups. And everyone that knows me even still to this day in a meeting, if there's a styrofoam cup, I will tear it apart into little tiny pieces because I need to have something in my hands. Yeah.
0: Hey guys, want to talk to you about United Recovery Project. We're a state of the art drug and alcohol rehab facility. We have three locations in Florida and three locations in California. Our facilities are state of the art, luxury and high end. We do take most insurances. If you're struggling, I always tell people to go to a 12-step meeting, but some of us need an extra head start to give us a fighting chance. For those of you that do need this head start, that are detoxing, that do think you need to speak to a professional, please call 833-999-1877. We are working with most insurances. Even if you can't get into our treatment center, we will point you in the right direction. Please give us a call today. Once again, that phone number is
1: 833-999-1877. And so from that first meeting to my last night using, well, this guy, this speaker, right? Starts talking about sponsorship. I'm an 18 year old kid from the barrio. So I'm thinking, sponsor? Yo, somebody's gonna pay me to do these steps, mm-hmm. like Little League, right? Yeah, you will to get a sponsor. So I asked him. I was like, "Hey, Holmes, so where do I like find a sponsor? eh? because you know I want somebody to pay me how to do this." And he's laughing, and he's like, "Hey, nobody gonna pay you, man. Like, just you know, keep coming back." So they tell me to go to this meeting in the barrio, and I go to this meeting in the barrio. This black dude is celebrating six years clean. And you know, he kind of looks like Debo from Friday. Mm-hmm. It's kind of mean-looking black dude, you know, buff, creased out. You know, he shared a story. And then this Chicano guy, older guy, is celebrating 13 or 14 years clean. And he reminds me of like the an uncle I never had. Mm-hmm. Kind of calm, kind of speaks with a Chicano accent. And I'm like, I tell my girlfriend and another friend we were sitting with, I'm like, That Chicano guy is going to be my sponsor, eh? And our homegirl says, why don't you ask the black dude? I'm like, man, fuck that black dude, eh? What's he (laughs) going to teach me about a recovery? I'm from the barrio. I need a Chicano, Mm -hmm. man, to, like, teach me about the steps, homes. So I go up, and it's in the book. It's, it's my favorite uh-huh. scene. I go up to the front of the meeting to, 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 to you know, ask the Chicano guy to be my sponsor. Mm-hmm. And I'm not remembering anything. I rehearsed the whole thing in my head of what I'm going to ask the Chicano guy. So as I get close to him, all these NA people cut me off at the pass to, like, tell a celebration, yeah. right? Happy birthday. And so I'm stuck in this big hall in the barrio, large meeting, and I'm looking around and I'm like, oh shit. Who's standing next to me but the black dude? Mm-hmm. And he looks at me, he's like, hey, what's up, little man? And I looked at him and I'm like, oh fuck, Holmes. I said, hey, Holmes, beanie down on my nose, mm-hmm. all gangster, right? Wanna be gangster? I'm like, hey Holmes, my homegirl over there told me to ask you to be my fucking sponsor, eh? And so he, he gets the NA schedule. He says, here's my phone number. Here's my beeper number, call me tomorrow, and you're gonna call me for 30 days straight, and we'll start you on step one. That man taught me how to be a man in Narcotics Anonymous. And that man loved me unconditionally. And that man taught me how to build a foundation made of stone in Narcotics Anonymous and in recovery. And he taught me, because he lived the principles that it wasn't about age, race, Sexual identity, creed, religion, or lack of religion. But I still struggled. That came later. Mm-hmm. So from that first meeting to my last night using, I hit bottom.
0: Yeah, I think that I think that was like one of the most memorable parts of the book is that when I read that last the last time you used, like we talk about it in the meetings, like remember your last high or whatever. When I read that, I I remember like thinking like wow, like next time I see Jesse, like I'm going to hug him. Like it was that bad where it was like, holy fuck. The fact that like you ha- called your sponsor and uh, have been clean ever since. So
1: one of those moments of magic in my life was, and I don't want to give it away obviously, right? But I got brutally raped that night and I got thrown down a second story townhome naked into the streets and no one would stop to help. And I'm a kid, I'm beaten up, I'm bleeding from everywhere and no one stops to help. And I'm trying to grab my clothes and I'm putting my clothes on as I'm trying to run down the street. I get to downtown and I often wonder what would have happened to me had my sponsor not picked up the phone. It was around 11 o'clock at night. What would have happened if he didn't pick up the phone that night? And he picked up and I remember crying. And I remember saying, how the fuck did my life get here? What did I do to deserve all this fucking shit? I might, I would, all I wanted to do was be a kid. Mm-hmm. All I did was go buy water balloons. How the hell did my life go from being a loving, nerdy kid who loves reading National Geographic magazines to the, all the fucked up shit that happened to that night? and he picked up the phone and i was like and i didn't tell him what happened i was just crying and saying i don't want to live like this anymore why does this shit keep happening to me why does this shit keep happening to me i don't want to live like this anymore (laughs) and he said um he said you don't have to he said you don't have to little man that's what he would call me Mm -hmm. or jess and he said um You lost the war, man. Not just the battle, but the war. Let me walk you through the 12 steps of Narcotics Anonymous, man. I love you, and you don't have to live like this no more. And I remember hearing that, and that was my last night using. I got home. I walked into a McDonald's across the street from San Diego City College, still there. And um, I cleaned myself up in the bathroom. I looked at myself in the mirror. I walked out, ignoring everyone that was staring at me. And I got home, took a shower, and fell asleep. And that was my last night using. And that was March, my clean date's March 12th, 1993. Wow. And I was 18 years old. And then the work began. I started working my step work. So I
0: have uh, someone that, uh, I guess, uh, you know, we're friends. He's been clean like two years, right? But he's like refused to work the steps. And I keep trying to explain to him, Like, bro, I understand how great being clean is, but, like, getting clean and not working the steps is, like, saving up your whole life to buy your favorite exotic car, and you just keep it in the garage. Like, it's like you did all the work, all the hard shit, and, like, the real part that, like, the reason why you're clean gets unlocked through the 12 steps. And I don't think that I would have any of this shit if it wasn't for the steps. I wouldn't either. I, I think if I got clean and I didn't work the steps, I would just live my... I wouldn't even think about how I could impact other people. Like, my whole personality. That's what step 12 or step 11 is about, you know? A profound personality change on how we think and feel and interact with other people. So, it's like, to me, getting clean and not working the 12 steps is... It makes me sad, you know? It's like getting the acceptance letter from Harvard and never
1: going. So, it's funny because in my book... Pre-edits, I went through all my steps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was as if I was speaking at a at a convention, yeah. right? And, and it was edited out. And I understand why it was edited out. And I understand, you know, not trying to violate traditions. So I couldn't really quote the steps exactly. Yeah. So all that was coming into play. Part of the process for me and the change, it's all in the steps. The freedom was in the steps. And, you know, therapy and all that came, you know, later for me when did you go to th- professional therapy after you were clean so we'll talk about that in a minute uh-huh. but i remember i had about 11 months clean my negative self-deprecating thoughts started coming back man fuck a fuck recovery you know, ain't no young people like you coming in, coming in here. You, you know, your life is going to be boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not going to be able to party no more. You're an 18, 19-year-old kid now. You're Chicano, and everyone's partying it up. And, and, and you're, like, boring, dude. Your life is going to be all about meetings, smoking cigarettes, going to Denny's and coffee shops after meetings, and eating apple pie, and that's what your life is going to consist of. Mm-hmm. Damn. This is some boring-ass shit, right? So my sponsor, uh, he picks me up. I tell him, like, I don't think this, this recovery thing is for me. I don't see young people, really. I see some in the beach area, but they're all white. They, I can't relate to them. Their families paid for treatment. That's not where I come from. I think I'm just going to go back to, like, living my life, man, because this, this recovery thing is not for me. And he gives me a speaker tape. Mm-hmm. And he gives me, he, pulled, he He reaches in his glove compartment and he says, here, it's a speaker tape of this kid who was speaking at a convention. <laughs> so he says, I want you to listen to this speaker tape. Mm-hmm. And I got home that night. I put on my Walkman, put on my headphones. And it's a story of this kid. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about getting clean young. And yeah, totally different stories. But I needed to hear the story of someone else getting clean young Mm -hmm. and staying clean. And their process of being in recovery and working the steps. And I didn't meet him. I would listen to his cassette tape every morning on the way to school. Mm -hmm. And I would listen to it on the way home from school. And he gave me hope that I could stay clean. And then I was finally able to meet him about a year later at a convention or around eight months later at a convention. And, and that was a whole funny story about how we met because he thought I was trying to beat him up because I looked like a big old gangster, mm-hmm. wannabe, right, wannabe cholo. And I just hugged him and I hugged him and I cried and I cried. And all I could say was thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for doing that speaker tape so many years before because you helped me stay clean.
0: Yeah, and he told me, so uh, obviously I'm good friends with him, and he told me, he's like, dude, I spoke at this convention, there was probably four people there, and I was like, you know, when you speak at a convention, there's like a main speaker, and then there's like workshops, and then, you know, there's smaller meetings, and he was probably speaking at this small meeting, probably a handful of people there, and his tape somehow made it to you, and- Years later. Years later, yeah, years later. So it's like, you know, that's kind of my goal
1: with the podcast. You never know the impact you're going to have and or this, the purpose. It could
0: be years later. It dude, this is going to be later. online forever. So it's like, you know, I get messages all the time from people who are like, dude, I, uh, this woman messaged me the other day. She's like, I'm a truck driver and I listen to your podcast when I'm driving the truck and I don't have time to go to meetings. And, you know, I hear stories from people who are like, dude, I used to think 12-step meetings were totally whack. And I started going. There's a kid in Florida. He said he's from New Jersey or somewhere. And he's like, dude, I listened to your podcast. And where I'm from, he's like, where I'm from, meetings aren't like, like, there ain't no young people there. (laughs) So he got on a plane, flew to Florida, and just started going to meetings from the podcast, you know. So it's like my goal is to have so much proof that the program works. That it's undeniable. Like, I don't, my biggest thing is when I started going to meetings, I no longer could say, oh, I can't get clean because of this. Or, oh, it's hard for me to get clean because I'm young. Oh, it's hard for me to get clean because I don't have any money. Oh, it's hard for me to get clean because no one supports me. Or when you go to meetings and you see all these people that get clean from nothing, you can't go home with an excuse no more
1: there is no excuse. I don't have a car. Uh, we'll drive you. Right, right. I don't exactly, have a Exactly, exactly, exactly. I don't exactly. feel like
0: staying clean. It, neither did I, you know? It's like even if it's like it destroys every ounce of of weaponry that like the disease has
1: <laughs> prior. To, I, I was at a meeting know? yesterday and, and somebody was sharing about recovery being really hard and and somebody got up with some time afterwards and he said, you know, recovery is like sex you know it's it only gets good when it starts to become hard and and it was funny right because I was like wow that's interesting (laughs) because a lot of my growth has come through those difficult times and being able to stay clean but there's also a lot of growth in the joy and good times in recovery Mm because I had to learn how to have fun When you get clean young and you've experienced all the traumas that a lot of us experience when we get here, we need to learn how to have fun again, Mm -hmm. how to laugh. And sometimes it takes a year. It took me a long time. I don't think
0: I really knew how to have fun until I had like 18 months clean. My first 18 months clean, I went to meetings, I went home, I was miserable. I went to meetings, I went home, and I was miserable. And then at 18 months clean, I was like, oh, you know what? I want to go skydiving. Oh, well, I just Google how much skydiving is, 350 bucks. Mm. All right, I'm going to save up 350 bucks. Oh, and then I'm going to group chat five of my friends and see who wants to go. Oh, yeah, I'm down to go. We're all going to go. And it's like when you're using, you can't even make plans. You know what That's I mean? That's funny. When you're using, you can't even have an idea and put it into action. Right. But when you're clean, I think it took me 18 months to be like, I can think of something and put it on the calendar and fucking work towards it and do it.
1: So it's funny because the first experience, and, and damn, I don't want to give away the whole book. So I'm not broken. Please get a copy. Support, mm-hmm. you know, someone in recovery. Debut Latino author. I talked about going to volleyball, NA volleyball. Yeah, I remember that. And the and well. there's this there's this yeah, there's this kid. We're not even a kid. He's 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 19. I'm 18. Buff ass dude. Good looking and from New York with the accent, and he convinces me to go play volleyball. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't high-five in the barrio, mm-hmm. right? So I had these dicky yeah, I, sh- That was so funny. It was like, good job, dude. Good just- job, bro. Right on, dude. And I'm like, what the hell? But, yeah. you know, after a while, I start laughing. Yeah. And I started having a good time. Mm-hmm. And so I had to learn. For me, I did have to learn early on. And even though they weren't Chicanos from the barrio, I found yeah. other young people in recovery that went to both fellowships. So I would go to AA because that's f- to socialize and that's yeah. where the young people were. That's funny. But my recovery was an NA. In Florida, my step a work was an that's NA. Yeah. My hanging out, my, my sponsorship and my... And so it, it was a trip because, you mm-hmm. know, then the, you got the, the, you know, the diehard, you know recovery folk Mm -hmm. that it's one or the other you know what nah man I had to find it where I had to find it Mm -hmm. and I learned how to have fun and be young and we would go dancing together we'd go to clubs together Mm -hmm. and if one person felt uncomfortable everyone would leave no questions asked that's cool and we would hit coffee shops and play pool like it became fun shit that I never did right but I started going to I kept going to school Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to go back to your question about when I started getting back into therapy. And at one point, it was around the time I started my four-step because I was really confused about my sexuality. I had a girlfriend. She brought me to my first meeting. Mm-hmm. She stayed clean. And I was just confused about who and what I was. I never had the chance to come to my own without drugs. My first sexual experience was by force and then drugs stepped in. Mm-hmm. So getting clean, what we don't talk about a lot, we talk about it in men's meetings, which is a lot of fun, mm-hmm. but learning how to be intimate without dope, yeah, without drugs was a whole process. My girlfriend would touch me and I'd, I'd jump. Mm-hmm. And so all these like triggers started coming back. And so I decided that I wanted to... And I took 12 months of therapy, no booty calls, and just focused on me. And I would drop little hints to my sponsor, this mean-looking black dude who looks like Mm Debo. you know, about kind of being confused, man. And I remember when I finally told him, um, I'm like, I don't know if I'm gay. I don't know if I'm bi. I don't know what I am. And he's like, you don't got to know. Like, I love you, Jesse. Mm-hmm. And I'm here with I'm here through your journey to help you figure it out, and that's the kind of stuff that a lot of people in recovery, especially the men, don't talk about, is the sexual inventory, mm-hmm. and the traumas that sometimes we experience or our own issues and challenges or with even identity. Go to outside help and go to like actual
0: therapy because right. yeah, the steps are great, and I wouldn't be here without the twelve steps. But um, at some point, I think you need to broaden your horizon and go see an actual therapist.
1: So I started in there. I went back to therapy. I got lucky because the state reinstated my my program. Mm-hmm. They reinstated it and they helped me pay for therapy and I went back to therapy and from I think 11 months clean until I transferred to UC Berkeley. Wow. And so Yeah,
0: so I mean, I don't want to ruin the whole book, but it's incredible. You went to Berkeley and then you went to Harvard and it's like I think you're the only person I've ever met in my life that's a Harvard graduate. <laughs> I don't think I've ever met anybody who like actually graduated at Harvard. It's just, it's you got an incredible story, Jesse, and uh, I hope we can continue to share it. I hope that this brings more exposure to you and your book.
1: Thank you. And, and you know, the beautiful part about recovery for me and that I hope your, your listeners or your viewers take away is we talk about old dreams reawaken. We talk about, You know, hope being real. Sometimes a lot of us don't even know how to dream, right? We don't Mm -hmm. even know what's possible. I didn't know what was possible, but I stayed open and allowed others, I stayed humble and I remained teachable. And by remaining teachable, I was able to listen to other people's suggestions. I didn't know about the GRE. Yeah. I didn't know about. I didn't want to go to get my master's. Mm-hmm. I wanted to move back to San Diego after I graduated from Berkeley, get a job, you know, teaching at, you know, City College or something. Why well, you can't without a master's? Uh-huh. Teaching in juvenile hall, and the opportunity arose to do a fellowship. I did a fellowship that paid for my a large portion of my graduate school. I didn't know what fellowships were. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that they were available. It's not like people in N.A. were telling me, you should apply to this yeah. fellowship. Other students taught me what was possible, and I, I remained open, and I just did the footwork. And when somebody said, and she's in my book, she said, you should apply to Harvard. I'm like, I'm never going to get in. Mm-hmm. I had a 3.9 GPA. And I wrote my statement of purpose or my personal essay. I didn't hold anything back. I didn't talk about the Mm -hmm. sex trafficking and all that, obviously, but I got in. Amazing. And the whole world became available to me because of recovery. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of like God said, you know, here, do you want it? Mm -hmm. And kind of like, boom. And me just grabbing it and being like, Yeah, I want it. I want to live my life today. And what's come from it is a beautiful world fucking opened up to me. And it still continues to open up. Mm -hmm. After Harvard, I went to UPenn, two Ivy League institutions. We are smart people. We're smart people, live your dream, Mm -hmm. suit up, show up. And sometimes even the impossible all of a sudden becomes possible. Look at you. Hey, like you. you're doing what i would love to do one day mm-hmm. i would love to open up some lgbt sober living homes mm-hmm. i want to open up some you know i want to do a podcast maybe one day maybe i'll write another book and you know part of my journey is to help other people achieve their dreams and mm-hmm. i hope that when you decide to write your book yeah, I'll that i can uh, that yeah. i can be right there right alongside Absolutely. with you man you. helping you out
0: hey thank you so much jesse and uh it's been a pleasure having you on the show
1: I hope so, bro. (laughs) Thank you.
0: (laughs) This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 833-999-1877 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.